Here's a question. If you owned a video game, one that you could play with your friends whenever you wanted, why would you watch someone else do it and pay for the privilege? Over the last 10 years, high-speed internet has made it possible to watch somebody play any sort of game anywhere in the world. On sites like YouTube and Twitch, streamers have been able to make a living, make a fortune, some of it shared with charities, from playing games. Fortnite is the gaming world's latest trend, but online, there's an audience for just about anything. If you spent some time searching around on Twitch, you can find people playing the top tier AAA Fortnite down to one we just discovered and had fun with in the office for a couple days before we left, people who are streaming their chicken farm. Video games have been blamed for everything, from school shootings to rickets. Gamers have been fighting against stereotypes since the beginning. The pastime of the insular, the lonely. They were told that their interest, what they used to escape from the world, was turning them violent. So some of them said, fine. Why don't we show them the good that we can do? The money that we can raise for good causes just through being good or spectacularly bad at games. During the dance marathon, we got donations left and right and ended up emptying, like, I think, two full clips of Nerf darts at these people both while and after they were dancing. I broke eggs over my head. I had people buy in for and pick a number, 1 through 12, and some of them were boiled and some of them were not, and I would break them on stream. This is a lot like traditional sponsorship. You know, just in the same way that we would ask somebody to do a marathon, and they would go out and say, right, today I'm going to dress up in this silly costume if you donate to me. In the same way, you're seeing live streamers do online challenges, engaging with their community, and asking people to sponsor. This documentary is about the past, present, and future of gaming for good. Exploring the people who use games as a game-changing platform to promote good causes. How did a group of motivated gamers turn one truckload of children's toys into a multi-million dollar charity drive? Who raises money for children in war zones by playing war games without violence? And how far would you go to raise money for charity? From Tucson to Las Vegas, half a dozen times? From salesforce.org, this is Gaming for Good. The gaming and nerd community is much larger than people give us credit for because it seems like it's just a bunch of people that don't have money and don't have passion, which is the 100% opposite. And it's amazing what nerds can do when nerds are given a chance. And it's amazing how much money nerds have that we like to spend on things. I'm Will Bond, and every year on May the 4th, I am a Jedi. I wear the robes, I swing the lightsaber around and people stare and occasionally smile. But I'm also a pop culture podcaster. I've been studying the various ways in which people show their appreciation and dedication to the nerdy things they love. I know firsthand that games are a brilliant way of building communities, joining parties and online role-playing games, and showing the world that gaming can be a force for good. For me, video games have been an essential part of how I define myself, and a charity that has been a constant source of inspiration and who use games to improve the lives of young people in need is Child's Play. Child's Play, a charity, not the film about a killer doll, 
began in 2003 as the brainchild of Mike Krahulik and Jerry Holkins, who had already made names for themselves from their webcomic Penny Arcade. Spawning dozens of imitators and a yearly pop culture convention, PAX, the webcomics characters Taiku and Gabe were some of the internet's first viral stars. And it all began with a simple comic strip, defending the gamer's rights to sit on the sofa for hours at a time. The suggestion that video games cause violence, though, made them stand up and take notice. It wasn't an image of their hobby that Penny Arcade took to be accurate. So they set their readers a challenge, and Child's Play was born. When people were really starting to talk about gaming in a negative way that it promotes violence or shooting, and they kind of did this little stunt that said like, hey, no, that's not what it's about. We're a community that cares. And so they asked people to donate a ton of games. That's Kirsten Carlisle, the charity's philanthropy and partner experiences director. Now the charity operates across dozens of states in the US and around the world. And it all started with one hospital and a lot of toys. Travis Erickson, executive director of Child's Play. They worked with Seattle Children's and Amazon and made a wish list so that people could go online and buy toys and they invited their fans to go buy toys. And then two weeks later, they donated a giant truckload, a quarter million dollars worth of toys to Seattle Children's Hospital. Child's Play took a simple concept, gamers using their passion to campaign for good causes, and proved that it could work on a massive scale. Gamers are inspired by the cause because they remember the escapism that their hobby provided them with. Child's Play is about paying that feeling forward. Literally. And now, 16 years later, now we've got over 180 partner hospitals all across the globe. We um, work with getting close to 200 domestic violence shelters right now that we have game systems in as well. So we've really, in 16 years, taken what started as much a publicity stunt as anything else into a pretty serious charity that's, that's taking care of a lot of kids. That charity is partly built on the success of what is now the biggest earning sector in the entertainment industry, expected to be worth over $180 billion by 2021, according to market researchers Newzoo. I feel like games are being more accepted now as a entertainment medium, more along the lines of, of movies and TV shows and things like that. I think part of that probably comes from just aging out, right? It's sort of those of us who grew up with games are now in the positions to be writing news stories about games. So now we say games are great because they've been great for us. I think also with advances of it, just to be able to see how engaging it can be across the board. It, it reaches beyond just sort of that nerdy kid sitting in a basement gaming stereotype that it began with to everybody's playing games. Your mom is playing Candy Crush right now while she listens to this podcast, right? Like, it's happening in everybody's hands. And your mum could be one of the reported 9.2 million people who play Candy Crush for more than three hours a day. Every single day. Here's Travis again. Child's Play is actually, from the get-go, really empowered the community to do that fundraising. After that first fun toy drive that was organized and coordinated by Penny Arcade. Penny Arcade as a staff wasn't big enough to focus its time on the charity. They were running you know, the actual business, running the for-profit business. So very early from the very beginning, it gave the community the chance to do fundraising, set up a PayPal account, 
gave people the ability to sort of set up a little button on their website that just says, donate here, and it goes straight to the PayPal account. It cut out sort of the, the worry of the middleman of, well, if you say you're doing this thing and I give you this money, is it getting to the right place? The technology allows charities to hand some power over to gamers. It's something they've been doing for years, with community coffee mornings and sponsored runs. But in the streaming world, it can be immediate, live, and often no holds barred. The technology is also agnostic. Organizations like Child's Play allow streamers to raise money in whatever way they decide. Here's Kirsten Carlisle again. We're allowing our donors to be who they are with the groups of people that support them and that raise the money. And that's different than a lot of the other national or international nonprofits like us, that they might have more rules around that. I think that's also what's made Child's Play so successful is we have not really created a barrier to them raising funds. If you want to use Tiltify, if you want to use Twitch or YouTube, or if you want to use our platform, our mobile cause platform and do texting to give, if you want to do a pub crawl, we're really open to how the donors want to support us and feel good. The Tiltify that Kirsten mentioned is a fundraising platform designed specifically for gaming campaigns. Think of it like a charity activity pack sent through the post, complete with sponsorship forms. It's one of the initiatives that helps in the work Child's Play does, spreading engagement, offering incentives for donating, and integrating fundraising on every platform, 100% online. I think the reason that internet gaming marathons have really taken off over the past decade is that the best new ideas are actually old ideas improved by modern technology. And this is what we tell local media, like when the newspaper comes and we go, oh, it's an internet fundraising video game marathon where we play this video game called Desert Bus on the Sega CD and they just sort of glaze over. They have absolutely no frame of reference. What we say is it's a telethon. And they go, oh! Graham Stark is one of the founding members of Loading Ready Run, a Canadian comedy troupe who regularly stream on Twitch. Every November since 2007, they drop everything and dedicate themselves to playing the game Desert Bus for Child's Play. Desert Bus for Hope started in 2007, so we're just about to have our 13th marathon this coming November. And as near as we can figure, and no one's refuted this yet, we were the, the first internet fundraising video game live stream marathon thing. Never officially released, Desert Bus, the game, is part of a prank compilation cooked up by the magicians Penn and Teller. It's regularly cited as the most boring game ever made. A team of dedicated drivers are put on a shift pattern throughout the stream to ensure the bus doesn't veer off the road. The cause is important but so as not spending too long in front of a screen. An important consideration for gamers in general. But why such a boring game? So we picked Desert Bus because the concept of driving a bus on a perfectly straight, featureless road for eight uninterrupted hours where you have to interact with the controller the whole time, and then when you get to the other side, you get a single point and turn around and go back, was funny. We just thought that would be, you know, an entertaining thing to keep us sort of trapped in the room. But that alone wouldn't keep viewers coming back day after day to donate. 
Which is why Desert Bus for Hope is not just a bunch of people sitting around on their couch playing bus driver. As it grew and grew, Desert Bus for Hope has featured dramatic readings, improvised sketches, musical numbers, and niche, nerdy auctions. And that's part of the fun when it comes to charity streaming. It has to have enough content for both viewers to keep watching and donating, and for the streamers to keep going. It's people like you and I out there live streaming. Anyone can do it. You can flip a switch and be like, hey, this is the entertainment I'm giving you, and in exchange, please give money to this charity. I think it's successful because it's an idea that everyone immediately gets. They're like, oh, yeah, I would like to do that. We specifically have hit on a wonderful mixture of generosity and spite, which is that people feel good about giving to charity, and then they also get to make us suffer. So it's, it's great for the viewer. Thank you for raising so much money for the children. Child's Play has grown exponentially in the last 16 years. And its commitment to helping children has inspired many individual groups across the world to find ways of helping people donate. In the case of Desert Bus for Hope, their expectations were exceeded from the start. We had figured that we'd flip the stream on, try to raise some money, maybe nobody would watch, and that would be our weekend. And we talked about what we were going to sort of set our goal at, because it's good to have a goal when you're doing a fundraiser and I think someone was like, you know, like, oh, like a thousand dollars. And I'd said, no, 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 no. Let's let's like shoot for the moon. Let's say five thousand. We'll never get there, but let's let's say, you know, that we want to raise five thousand. And then the first year we raised over twenty-two thousand dollars. It was just sort of like, okay, that got out of hand. I guess we're doing that again next year. Desert Bus for Hope is now just one of hundreds of charity streams that orbit around Child's Play. Donors come back year after year, and what began as Penny Arcade's way for gamers to redress the balance following criticism of their hobby is now a fully-fledged charity. Overall, Child's Play is getting close to the $50 million mark raised in, in 16 years, and they are 10% of the funds that we've raised. People look at that and then they ask us, how do we do that? And we go, we have no idea. We just turned it over to the, to the community and they started this for us. They do it. We, we show up now to, to be there and help out if needed, but we are almost as much in the way as anything else. For charities, understanding the gamer mindset and harnessing their joy is essential to building a successful drive. What inspires people not just to play games for hours on end, but to engage with others doing the same thing for charity, even if it is the most boring game ever made. We spoke to Lacey Finlay, who has put in plenty of streaming shifts for Child's Play. The emotions that's going through as the charity stream is happening, you're going to go through a whirlwind. It's going to be so exciting. It's going to stress you out. You're probably not going to sleep. But at the end of Sunday, when we more than doubled our goal, I was on such a high especially when I saw the joy in Travis's email. Um, getting to hear where that money went was amazing. And the fact that you were able to pull off something so good for someone else. I think that whole week I had, it looked like I slept with a hanger in my mouth. I had a smile from ear to ear the whole time. It's just a really great feeling. Delirium is a common emotion for gamers who do marathon streams. 
It's an exhausting feat, but even with a game as dull as Desert Bus, there is a drive to press on, to offer increasingly outlandish rewards for reaching an important milestone. Like a regular marathon, the push to keep going is strong because they know how much difference even a small contribution can make. We had a kid this morning at Evelina's who was recovering from spinal surgery and had been reluctant to get down and move or anything else. Yesterday, his mom said he couldn't even make it past the elevator, walked sort of from his bed to the elevator, and that was it, and came out this morning and played probably 15 songs of Beat Saber in a row. Beat Saber is a virtual reality game, a bit like Guitar Hero, where players use two controllers as lightsabers to hit the beats on screen. We get kids who are reluctant to, you know, sort of leave their room. They're, they're in sort of that depressed state of, I've been in this hospital for a long time. And bringing games in, um, especially VR games that are kind of a new, a new exciting thing for them that they don't necessarily have in the hospital, bringing it to them gets them excited and makes them want to come in. And it's also a chance for us to really show the staff that it's not that complicated to set up VR and look at the impact it had on this kid's life. This is gaming for good at its best. Transporting children who'd rather be anywhere but the hospital into another world. Child's Play was rooted in gamer culture from the beginning, while other charities have approached gaming for good from the outside and found success, like War Child. Their work provides support and a safe space to children who've lost everything to war in their countries. They started in 1993, when the big cultural battles were between Mario versus Sonic, and for the charity's founders, Blur versus Oasis. Nick Scott is head of partnerships at Warchild. Our first big, big fundraiser was called Help. It was an album released in 1995, and I have no idea how they managed to do this, but they galvanized the, pretty much the entire Britpop industry. They came together, they organized, recorded, and got an album out in six days and it went on to become the biggest selling charity album of all time. So how does a charity evolve from making hit records to reducing hit points in video games? Nick credits Miles Jacobson, studio director at Sports Interactive, the makers of Football Manager, who used to be in the music industry and worked on the Help album. Miles championed Warchild when he moved into gaming. Here's Nick again. And that was our real entry point. At that stage, we knew nothing about gaming. We didn't have a case for them to support us. They were literally just there as individuals who, who cared about the issues that affect children in conflict zones. So that's how we initially got into it. Nick credits two people within Warchild who really pushed for the charity to get involved with gaming in a serious way. Elizabeth Little, Nick's predecessor, and Nina Safiri, the fundraising director, both understood the scope and scale of which Warchild, or indeed any charity, can use gaming as a means for greater promotion and fundraising. They recognized that it wasn't enough to set up a fundraising page and hope for the best. Understanding the potential audience and working with people who knew what made them tick helped them develop a strategy. And to do that, they brought in specialists. One of them was Wayne Emanuel, now head of gaming at Warchild. He wasn't just a gamer, he knew business as well. There's a number of ways that we work with the gaming industry and sector. So we've been working in the sector for just over 10 years. And for us, it's another way of reaching people and talking about 
the challenges that vulnerable children face. The gaming industry is worth what, over 137 billion now, I think. So it's a big industry that we can also potentially fundraise from. So it's the reach and the fundraising capabilities of the industry that make it a really important sector for us to be investing in and to be working with. And we've had success by making bold decisions. Being bold is actually one of our values, however you interpret that. And we've had success at committing to innovation and trying new things out and and trusting in the people that support us to help them try new things out to support us. Nick told us about the decision Warchild took before he joined, one they didn't take lightly, to work with games that featured death, conflict and war. One of the big things that they really did, a really big piece of work called Real War is Not a Game. And this was the campaign. It kind of set out the rule book for which games we would work with and which ones we wouldn't. And the two big early conflict games that we worked with were World of Tanks and This War of Mine. Both of them fantastic games, fantastic communities who've been supporting us for many, many years. This War of Mine is a game where you play as a civilian in a fictional war-torn city, trying to survive days and nights during a siege until a ceasefire is declared. Warchild and the game's developer 11-Bit Games collaborated on a DLC, or downloadable content. The DLC cost only 99 cents, yet it raised over $500,000 for Warchild. Wow. Working with game companies that specialize in playing at war as a charity that promotes peace was a risk. But Nick feels it paid off. People are intrigued by it. People want to hear more about why we work with conflict games, but we've not had complaints about it. And Warchild are unique in the way they've worked closely with game studios. If you think about gaming simply as interactive entertainment, and if you think about the gamers themselves as consumers of that entertainment, fans of that entertainment, we're simply looking to work with studios and create more and more interesting ways that we can do some really good work and raise some money. One way they achieve this is through their Armistice campaign. We're very happy to say it's just won the IOF award for innovation for the second time, which is something we're really, really proud of. And Armistice is really, really simple. It's about games that have some form of conflict in it, which is a lot of games. There's a lot of battle games, a lot of fighting games, and it's about pacifying them in some way, shape or form. It's a really simple concept. Some games have really taken quite severe steps to pacify their games, and other ones are quite simple. But ultimately it's about getting that message out there and effectively saying that this community of gamers who like to play battle games, they can actually be a, a real driver for change and for positive outcomes for children in conflict zones. Warchild's Armistice campaign is an example of how an innovative gaming challenge can generate buzz for a charitable cause. And it's not just a challenge to gamers. Warchild work with studios to include content in their games that encourage players to think differently about conflict. This includes in-game incentives that can be purchased, cosmetic items for your character, or mechanics that make their games play differently. And the proceeds go straight to Warchild. Here's Wayne Emanuel. And so we've worked well with well over probably 30 different studios on various um, Armistice bits of content. We've worked with like Wargaming, who've 
created in-game items, kind of mascot items that you can purchase. More recently, we worked with a developer who have a VR game called Dick Wild, which is like a hunting game. And what they did was they added Cupid's bow and arrow to the game. So every time you shot an arrow, it would, instead of kind of like killing the animals, they would kind of burst into hearts, basically. Which is like a really cool, creative, inventive way of pacifying that, that game and tied into our Armistice creative. Microtransactions, small purchases that enhance a game on top of its regular value, have become an intrinsic part of gaming culture in recent years. They're controversial, in some countries they're legally classified as gambling. Some studios, though, guarantee rewards in exchange for a charitable donation. It's a win-win for gamers, looking good in-game while doing good in real life. Another example of creating extra content for games called on Warchild's connections to the arts world, through bonus content in the game we mentioned earlier, This War of Mine, which puts players in the role of innocent civilians, caught up in the middle of a war. We ended up getting together a series of um, street artists to allow us to use their work within the game. And players could pay to unlock this kind of section of the game where they'd go and actually find these pieces of art and it would actually help their mental well-being as they were guiding these characters through. It's just a great story, it's a great thing that we can then talk about and share with other people. So there's the fundraising element, the fundraising side of it, um, but there's also the creative side of it, which lends really well to conversations, which then create awareness for us. How many different types of media are going to get people to really concentrate on something, really grab people's attention for such an extended period of time? Gaming can be quite a personal experience and you've got this audience that's very much captivated. If those players can feel like they have some form of empathy for children in conflict zones, great, fantastic, and I think that adds real strength to it. With Warchild's knowledge of the industry, they're able to create campaigns that both help their cause and inspire positive change in an industry that isn't always open to all. Day of the Girl is another of their annual campaigns connected to the United Nations International Day of the Girl a worldwide effort to increase awareness of gender inequality. Proceeds from game sales made through the campaign go to helping women and girls in conflicts, and Wayne also sees an additional benefit in encouraging diversity in games. Lauren Radford is part of the Yogscast, a gaming channel with their own slate of charity streams, including the Christmas Jingle Jam, which in its seven years of existence has raised over $14 million for good causes including Warchild. She worked with the Day of the Girl campaign last year. I'm already quite vocal about issues with equality. And so the International Day of the Girl thing actually spoke to me quite heavily. And it also gave me an opportunity to play a game with a really cool female lead character. I mean, I'm not like one of those people that cares whether the protagonist is male or female, but it's always so fun playing someone and being like, yeah, I relate. The International Day of the Girl returns this October the 11th. So, you now know some of what's possible when it comes to working with streamers and game studios. As someone who both loves video games and streaming alike, it's honestly incredibly encouraging to see that there are people out there willing to make time, spend time and sacrifice time to making their passion for play intertwine with their love of a good cause. 
Nick Scott at Warchild says taking the dive into such a big and diverse community requires preparation, but yields rewards for charities willing to put in the time. It's not something that you should expect a quick fix. For us, it's quite strategic, it's quite long-term, and, and we've gradually grown that. But it's a huge industry. It's the, by far and away the biggest entertainment industry now. And there are lots of people connected to it who, like everyone else, want to support good causes. You've got studios, you've got gamers themselves who come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. You know, there is, there is a game for every single demographic. So there is a lot of people out there to engage with and a lot of people out there who, if approached in the right way, would I've no doubt want to support a myriad of different causes out there. Kirsten Carlisle from Child's Play is a relatively new and somewhat accidental gamer who says that in streaming, one ingredient is key. Authenticity. I got on Twitch for the first time and I don't really have many followers, but I'm following people and I'm trying to host people and trying to understand the commentary, making a comment here and there and and watching. I spend about an hour a day on Twitch just learning about it, going to YouTube, rewatching videos. If you can't speak the language, it's difficult to come in and act like you know what you're talking about. So I've, I've also been very transparent and honest, and I call myself the accidental gamer because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there and I'm going to know more than playing Candy Crush on my phone, right? And so learning and playing and playing out of my comfort zone. When you're in the early stages of working in the industry, partnerships are there to be made with gamers like Yogscast Lauren, who we heard from earlier in the show. Many in the community are extremely approachable, and just because they play games for a living doesn't mean they're unprofessional. Nick, from Warchild, tells us how best to approach the gaming community to work on campaigns. But first, gamer, gaming advocate, developer, and charity fundraiser, Neil Bauer. There's 30 to 50 years, depending on how you look at it, of history that you have to get involved with. Most people on charities don't have the time. So find people that are very passionate about games and getting connected to this group and try to entice them to come into the charity and be part of it instead of like hey we want your donations just say hey we would love for you if you are involved with games to kind of help be our ambassador and our flagship going into these spaces gaming is, has become this massive industry but it's still run by people who ultimately like playing games like making games they are creatives they love this world so Bear in mind that you are talking to a lot of people who love what they do and they want to help you, but just be a little bit aware of that when you're going to talk to these people. And do your homework, you know? If you're going to approach a streamer, then watch the stream. Because it might be that actually you've seen the figures and think, wow, this streamer can really support us. But you may go onto the stream and think, actually, it doesn't fit with our brand. Um, and likewise, when you approach that streamer, you should. You know, it'd be good to know a bit about them and, and really demonstrate some form of enthusiasm for the product that they're, they're putting out there. Of course, there are some things you shouldn't say when approaching gamers for support. Lauren from Yogscast again. It's the trying to get down with the kids. Oh, hey, I love your content. I particularly like that one stream you did. Oh, man, that was lit, yo. Like, don't go there. <laughs> Earlier... We heard about the concept of handing over some responsibility to streamers, fundraising in the name of a charity. This can be a great thing, as it helps the streamer remain authentic to themselves and their audiences. 
But of course, some charities might be skeptical about being involved with a group that's more laissez-faire with their communication. Kirsten Carlyle explains how Child's Play deals with the spontaneity of their donors. When I first came in, you know, you do hear a lot of profanity or you do hear a lot of colorful analogies as people stream and game and do things. And that's just part of the industry. And they've embraced that. We're not saying that we promote it or that children should or shouldn't be listening. We're allowing our donors to be who they are with the groups of people that support them and that raise the money. And that's different than a lot of the other national or international nonprofits like us, that they might have more rules around that. The authenticity of streamers can sometimes mean mistakes are made, but the drive is always there. Lauren Radford from the Yogscast again. Because we are just people who are just creating content and having fun with it and trying to do good things, raising money and things like that, we're going to have our good days and our bad days. There's going to be some days where we're tired or we're sick or we make a slip up with something that we say, like a joke might come out wrong or you might read a name wrong on a screen and it sounds funny. Just little human mistakes here and there happen because it's live. If a company is concerned about people saying things that aren't inherently bad but don't necessarily reflect their message, then disclaimers are a great thing to have. The most simple way of putting all of this advice would be to tread lightly. Charities need to be really careful when they're approaching gamers, streamers, they're ultimately approaching people and asking them for money and they have to try and be aware of how it affects that studio or that streamer. You know, if you ask a streamer to do something for you, you're probably asking them to stop doing their day job for a day and work for you instead for a day. That's a big consideration that people need to take into account. Large campaigns aren't the only way to use gaming for fundraising, but whether it's a small or big part of your work, integrating it with your existing fundraising strategy is crucial, as Kirsten from Child's Play explains. Understand the business like we would in any other way for fundraising. So before I started working with Costco as a national partner and a fundraising partner back in my first day, I had to understand their business. What was their philosophy? How were employees treated? How did employees feel? What was their mission? What are the things they measure financially? And how are we going to help align with that with them? And I think that's the same thing with gaming. And Ben from Fragforce, an employee-led group within Salesforce, has some advice on connecting that business strategy to long-term engagement. You need to engage an audience. You need to broker connections. Keeping a regular schedule is something that if you're doing the streaming game is something that you need to do because otherwise you lose viewership and viewership drives donations. So it is something that you need to do. Regularity is what helps draw the crowds. Hosting one event and raising a few dollars, $20, $100, $1,000, $10,000, it doesn't matter. That's a wonderful thing, but it, what is even more wonderful is getting people to come back, getting people to engage over and over again. And that comes with creating a environment where people are engaged because you are engaged. And if you're engaged, everybody else is engaged and they want to come back. And that's the whole point. And as a charity, you're looking to get the biggest possible returns on your campaign. To do that, you need data. Places like Twitch and YouTube have 
already massive data analytics platforms to show how many people are engaging, how often they're watching, how often they're they're donating. And then of course, you combine numbers like those with the numbers that are coming directly from your charity processing systems and you can see as things grow, as things change, where the donations are coming from. You can see directly the correlation between viewership increasing and changing and adjusting in times of day, if you want to get really specific, and the amount of donations that are coming in. And you could probably, if you had enough data, you could start drawing which games draw more, more money for your charity. I'm on Twitch right now, and in my top... Uh, top 10 categories, I have, uh, of course, Fortnite is... For charities still Fortnite not sure Minecraft how they can work with streaming, or if video games are even the right thing for them, the streaming world is about much more than gaming. However, next to that, you have just chatting, you have science and technology, and you have art. Maybe your charity has nothing to do with video games. Streaming is so much more than that now. So let's say your charity is donating food to the homeless. You could probably find a cooking streamer, because this is a thing, that would create a dish from start to finish that takes two to three hours to talk about your charity. Maybe you donate clothes to women's shelters. You could find a cosplayer streamer who creates their costumes live on stream. With streaming being so new, people are doing such unique creative live streams. So I almost could guarantee whatever your charity is working towards, you could probably find some sort of live medium that falls in line with the content that you would like to present your brand professionally. The world can be an upsetting place, and so can the internet. Sometimes just the right thing to make you feel a bit brighter is a stream of someone walking their dog or trying to unlock the final achievement on a game they've spent 10 years trying to complete. For gamers, the challenge is what keeps them coming back. And this, fundamentally, is why charity gaming drives work so well. The instinct to complete one more level, upgrade this piece of gear, then that piece, finish that side quest, helps motivate fundraisers to go the extra mile or the extra hour. It's an enthusiasm that can be captured by charities with big ambitions, or individual gamers who want to support a cause close to their heart. If there are just a few things for you to take away from our look into the world of gaming for good, it's these. Integrating gaming into your existing business strategy is vital. You can build an engaging and successful campaign using close involvement with the incredibly open gaming communities that are out there. Don't be afraid to let them take the reins and push campaigns in exciting and unexpected directions. And most of all, always look out for Player One. I've been Will Bond. For more information about Gaming for Good and to hear from inspiring fundraising trailblazers, visit sfdc.co slash fundraising guide. We'd like to thank the charities and streamers whose insight and knowledge made this podcast possible. Travis Erickson, Eric Blandin, Kirsten Carlisle, Graham Stark, Wayne Emanuel and Nick Scott. Ben Gray, Shane Porter, Lauren Radford, Hannah Rutherford, Neil Bauer, Lacia Finley and Laura Williams. This documentary has been brought to you by Salesforce.org. 
It's a Sounds Fancy and Fieldwork production. Written and presented by me, Will Bond, with research and additional writing by Curtis James, Alex Reese, and Simon James. Music by Neil Hale and Simon James. Editing, production, and mixing by Simon James. <laughs>